Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Alyssa Jobson, and today we are bringing you a bit of a different episode. Ukraine calls for the establishment of the ad hoc special tribunal for the crime of aggression. Bring together Ukrainian prosecutors with other experts to start collecting the information that would be used to undergird a prosecution for the crime of aggression. ICC haven't jurisdiction to prosecute the crime of aggression, but the crime of aggression is the reason for all other war crimes which we have, unfortunately, in our country. Last week, my co-host Olya Olika and I moderated a Twitter space on the prospect of a tribunal to hold Russian political and military leaders accountable for crimes of aggression in Ukraine. We were joined by our colleagues Richard Gowan, Crisis Group's UN Director, and Brian Fanukan, Senior Advisor for Crisis Group's US Programme, and former Legal Advisor to the US State Department on legal and policy issues regarding counterterrorism and the use of military force. It was a really interesting and informative conversation, covering everything from the purpose of a tribunal, how crimes of aggression in Ukraine would be prosecuted, the role of the UN in its establishment, as well as the pros and cons of such a tribunal and its potential effects on peacemaking efforts. We very much hope you will find this as elucidating as we have. Enjoy. So I think the first basic question is... You know, calls to hold Russian leaders accountable for crimes of aggression in Ukraine have been growing louder recently. How do we actually define a crime of aggression in international law? And how could a tribunal on the crime of aggression tackle these issues? Who would be held accountable? Brian, maybe you can answer that. Sure. Great to join you all today. Um, the crime of aggression it seeks to give the prohibition under international law on the, on the use of force, seeks to give that prohibition teeth. Um, and the crime of aggression, at least as codified under the Rome Statute International Criminal Court, makes it a crime to prepare, initiate, or execute um, by a person in a position to effectively exercise control um, over or to direct the political or military action of a state of an act of aggression. Um, and the act of aggression is further defined um, in the Rome Statute. But the idea is that this is to criminalize aggressive war, and it's a leadership crime. It focuses in on um, the leadership of a state or those in control of the political or military actions of a state. And this is in contrast to atrocity crimes like genocide, war crimes, or um, crimes against humanity. So, Brian, so the idea is that under international law, the people in charge of the Russian Federation, uh, its leadership, would be held um, accountable, would be put in front of such a tribunal to be found guilty of beginning this war. Am I getting that right? At least under some of the proposals, um, although the parameters differ depending on the exact mechanism under contemplation. And there's really sort of three um, key models that people have been talking about. Um, the first, which you alluded to earlier, 
um, would be uh, an international tribunal established by um, some sort of agreement between um, Ukraine and the United Nations, potentially blessed or endorsed by a, a UN General Assembly resolution. Um, a second type of international model um, would be um, based on a multilateral treaty amongst a coalition of the willing, if you will. And then the third would be some sort of hybrid tribunal based uh, potentially in Ukrainian law or Ukrainian judicial system, but incorporating international characteristics such as international uh, prosecutors. Um, and depending on the model you select, um, it, the, it's such a um, aggression tribunal may or may not be able to uh, theoretically prosecute Russian senior leadership. And the reason I say this is because um, under international law, um, the so-called troika, that is the head of state, head of government, and the foreign minister of a state um, enjoy status-based immunity for domestic courts. So they couldn't be tried before a Ukrainian court, for example. And so establishing a new international court would be a way to um, circumvent that uh, immunity um, uh, for domestic courts. Are there any historical precedents for a tri tribunal like this? Yes, but very limited. Um, the relatively few precedents we have um, occurred following the complete defeat of Germany and Japan in World War II. Um, victorious allies tried German and Japanese leadership um, for crimes against the peace. Um, but you know, importantly, the war had already been won, um, and the wartime leadership of those countries had been deposed, was in custody. Um, there is one other um, relevant or potentially relevant precedent. Um, as I suggested earlier, the um, under Ukraine's domestic laws, the crime of aggression is criminalized. Um, and the former president of Ukraine, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, was tried in absentia for complicity in the crime of aggression. The problem usually with international law is that... Uh Countries only have to abide by it if they decide they have to abide by it. And it seems super unlikely that for Russia to just decide to allow a tribunal to try its existing government. Um, and Russia isn't a uh, signatory to the Rome Statute, neither is the United States, neither is Ukraine for that matter. I mean, just logistically, when you look at this, how, do, how does this work? How, how do you get around all of these problems, or do you? It's not clear. Um, I think, as with many aspects of the conflict, um, you know, things are still playing on the battlefield, um, so it's hard to predict with much confidence how um, an aggression tribunal or the prosecution of Russian leadership will eventually uh, play out, if at all, and how that relates to um, the underlying dynamics of the conflict itself. Um, there is a concern potentially that the establishment of an aggression tribunal with the mission of prosecuting Russian senior leadership, uh, is it a signal to the Kremlin that the West may be seeking regime change? Because it's hard to see how, uh, at least Putin would ever stand trial unless there was a, a change in power in Moscow. So I think that's one of the, um, the unknowns behind these proposals, um, to establish, uh, an aggression tribunal. Richard, I want to ask you, there was a lot of talk um, a few months ago, a couple months ago, about some kind of a UN uh, action, a UN resolution calling for a tribunal. How? What's the logic of that? Is it just the idea that you would demonstrate global support? And if so, why didn't that happen? Well, 
the Ukrainian mission in New York has been pushing this idea for some time. And actually, in October or November of last year, the Ukrainians circulated a resolution, uh, a draft resolution for the General Assembly requesting the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, to study how this aggression tribunal could be set up. And what Ukraine was hoping for was that the General Assembly could pass this resolution in February, uh, so on the first anniversary of Russia's all-out assault on Ukraine. Um, now, this proposal ran into quite a lot of obstacles. Um, firstly, Guterres, who is working very hard to try and keep Russia engaged in the Black Sea Grain Initiative, made it pretty clear that he does not want to have anything to do with discussions of the aggression tribunal, because that would uh, make his life very difficult with Moscow. Um, and then even some of Ukraine's allies started raising the concerns uh, that you've already heard from, from Brian about what sort of political message uh, the proposal would send uh, to Vladimir Putin. And so in January, the Europeans and the US were still considering sort of pushing this, this resolution on the tribunal. But my understanding is that at some point uh, back in January, the the US and the UK made it very clear to the Ukrainians that the time was not ripe for this initiative. And after that message was uh, was sent, the Ukrainians put the resolution to one side, although they and their, their closest allies in New York, such as the Baltic countries, still want to uh, have a resolution on the issue um, sooner rather than later. And how much support do you think... Uh there is for a tribunal of this type uh, amongst the wider UN delegation, you know, outside the Europe and North America. I mean, we saw um, a few years ago how opposed the African states were to the thought that the, the African leaders, in particular um, Bashir from Sudan and uh, Ruto and Kenyatta from Kenya, would actually potentially face prosecution at the ICC. You know, there's generally uh, uh, not much not much um, support for the idea of, of trying leaders and especially sitting leaders from from Africa. So how how has this idea been um, received amongst the, the the wider UN delegations? Well I don't think I don't think the Ukrainians and their allies have fully tested the views of the wider membership because to date the discussions have largely been um amongst the western countries about whether this is a wise uh wise course to take at all um i mean there's a working assumption amongst most western diplomats here that the idea of the tribunal will not be very popular uh among countries from uh, other regions such as africa uh last week there was a big debate on the anniversary of um, the invasion uh, in the General Assembly. And in that debate, Nigeria, for example, uh, raised uh, concerns about um, whether pressing for accountability uh, in Ukraine was a good idea. Um, I've also heard that 
uh, Indonesia behind the scenes um, was quietly questioning whether this was a, a good idea. So, you know, most of the messages are, are not, um, are not that encouraging. That said, we haven't seen the US and the EU do a sort of full scale diplomatic lobbying campaign on behalf of the idea. And if there was really strong US and European support behind it, that might bring some waverers around. So uh, maybe a silly question. Let's say the impediments are overcome, a tribunal of some sort or another is convened. I mean, is there any question about what it would decide, right? I mean, if you're asking aggression, yes, aggression happened. And how would, like, would it be the body that also imposes punishment? What would punishment look like? I mean, is there, um, is there clarity on this point? Uh, I guess this is for Brian. Um, I wouldn't say clarity. There have been a number of um, proposals under discussion. I think perhaps most relevant is a recent announcement from the president of the European Commission about the establishment of a international center for the prosecution of the crime of aggression uh, that will be established in The Hague. And this seems consistent with um, a few other proposals out there to establish some sort of interim prosecutor's office that can collect evidence, identify um, potential um, suspects, and... Um, you know, sort of be ready in the event that it be, later becomes possible um, to actually prosecute uh, Russian officials for um, the crime of aggression or be ready once, you know, there is a final decision on what form um, a, an aggression tribunal might take. Um, so there seems to be um, some sort of pr- um, progress on this sort of interim uh, prosecutor's office. And you've seen some, exp- at least expressions of interest, if not necessarily support, um, from the um, U.S. government. And I would add that, you know, although it's, you know, it's not only uncertain of the views of sort of non-Western states on an aggression tribunal, it's not even clear that there is um, consensus on a tribunal within um, the EU or even within the U.S. government. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I heard was, um, and I'm curious just what, uh, what you think of this, is, uh, whether there's, um, like whether, whether a tribunal that fixes the culpability of the Russian Federation or its leadership, I guess it's leadership, not the Russian Federation for the crime of aggression, does that open up the possibility of using frozen Russian government assets in a way that you couldn't otherwise because then, you know, that's a way of penalizing them, I guess. Um, I may be misunderstanding this, so maybe you can talk me through that. It's a good question, Ole. I've certainly heard um, the Ukrainian government link the two um, in recent remarks by Ukraine's prosecutor general, that is, say, linking um, the establishment of an aggression tribunal and, you know, the conviction of Russian uh, officials down the road with repurposing Russian assets for reparations. Um, I don't understand the details necessarily of the um, thinking um, by Ukraine on this connection or how that would play out. Um, there are a number of um, complicated uh, both domestic and international law issues uh, involved in um, you know, re- repurposing uh, frozen Russian assets for reparations, but it would probably be on the scope of this conversation, but it's a, a whole different set of issues um, beyond those raised by um, an aggression tribunal itself. Um, if, and if I can jump in uh, here, Olya, um, I think that if 
Ukraine sort of pushes this connection between the aggression tribunal and seizing Russian assets, that will make it an even harder sell diplomatically here. Uh, last year, the General Assembly did pass a resolution endorsing the idea of what's called a damages register for Ukraine. That is basically a, a tracking mechanism that allows uh, Ukraine to uh, sort of show the scale of um, destruction by the Russian military. And in that resolution, there was a reference to the possibility of Russia paying Ukraine reparations after the war. Now, again, a number of countries such as uh, Brazil and Indonesia uh, said very clearly during the discussion of the damages register that they believed talking about reparations was an obstacle to, to dialogue and to peace. And so I think that, you know, the, the more expectations are piled on the concept of a tribunal, um, the more you will see a lot of non-Western countries um, backing away and saying that this is actually a, uh, a morally hazardous proposal, if you will. As you've been speaking, Richard, uh, I've got a question for you. I mean, would there actually be a role for the UN in this, in a tribunal of this kind? And what, and what would that role be? I mean, I think that's, you know, that's open to question. As I said, the, you know, the initial Ukrainian proposal was for, uh, Antonio Guterres to do some homework. Um, it requested Guterres to produce a report, I think, within 30 days, um, uh, sort of outlining how a tribunal might work. However, in the discussions around this concept, uh, the, the Europeans have been advising Ukraine not to be too specific. Um, and perhaps just propose a resolution that endorses the idea of a tribunal without going into the specifics. I mean, I think that the, I, I think that UN officials would be very nervous about, um, any suggestion that the organization should be setting up a tribunal that could, at least in theory, prosecute, um, a head of state. Uh, of one of the five permanent members of the Security Council. I mean, that, that is not the sort of stuff that makes UN officials perk up and, and, and feel enthusiastic in the morning. Can I ask a question about um, the war ending and uh, peace talks? The, one of the arguments you hear against a tribunal is that it seems odd to say, on the one hand, we want you to sit down, negotiate, and end this war, and, oh, by the way, we're also going to put you on trial for the crime of aggression, um, a crime that the United States and its leaders never faced any prosecution for. Other countries that have invaded other countries never faced prosecution for. But in your case, we want to do that, but still, we also want you to make peace. Um, so, kind of, there, it's raises the question that you're disincentivizing the negotiations, right? And you're not incentivizing them in any particular way. Uh, I guess to both of you, maybe Brian first, uh, do you agree with that? And is there any way to work around that, right? To still incentivize the peace negotiations uh, while planning for a tribunal? So I think you've touched on a few different issues. One is the selectivity question and, and the issue that um, I've, you frequently hear raised and, and the 
um, concerned about, well, no one was prosecuted from the United States to the UK for the invasion of Iraq, so it was very odd to be establishing a, a new tribunal to try Russian leadership for their war, a lawful war of choice, um, and particularly when the U.S. went out of its way to um, block the ICC from exercising um, jurisdiction over non-parties for the crime of aggression. So that, that there's a selectivity issue. And then there's the what I would say is sort of the how uh, any aggression tribunal would play into um, conflict resolution. I think the examples that we have um, from recent history are not terribly helpful um, to the extent that Russia is a very different country than um, the former Yugoslavia, Serbia. So even if you know, um, you know, Serbian leadership participated in negotiations in Dayton and then later faced justice for the Hague, I don't think it really tells us much about how um, the, con- the, the um, tribunal would impact the conflict um, in Ukraine. Um, Russia is, a, of course, a nuclear power, a member of the Security Council, and it's, it's hard to see them being in a similar position at the end of this conflict to what um, you know, Serbia was um, in the Balkan Wars. So we've got an audience question, which I'm hoping um, Brian or Richard can answer. And also help explain the question is rather than establishing a tribunal, should effort be focused on the bigger Western countries adopting the Kampala Amendment? I don't know what the Kampala Amendment is. So whichever of you answers that might hopefully begin by telling us. Right. This refers to um, the aggression amendments to the um, Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've heard those proposals, um, and, um, I think they would, if, if adopted, they would go to some way to, uh, addressing the selectivity concern I mentioned earlier. Um, I think as a practical matter, it's just very, you know, the United States, for example, is never going to become a party, um, to the Rome statute with or without the, um, Kampala amendment. So I just don't see that happening. Um, whether other states, um, may change their positions, I don't know, and I, I certainly can't speak for them. And another audience question, thanks, that's really helpful, is about um, jurisdiction over Russia and, uh, I guess, where it would come from. Like, is there, are there, would it be based on universal jurisdiction principles or what? I think in some ways it would depend on the precise model for um, the tribunal. I think, you know, Ukraine could assert that it has jurisdiction because these crimes occurred on its territory and against its people. And, um... On Ukraine ICC membership, um, yes, Ukraine referred itself to the ICC, but should it also accede to the statute, even if only for the sort of primary purpose of optics? That's a, another question that we've got that's come in um, from listeners. So I don't know, Richard, can you answer that? I think it does matter optically. Uh, you know, when Ukraine was uh, pushing its draft resolution at the turn of the year, uh, there were certainly some countries such as Mexico that said they felt that it was um, at least dissonant for Ukraine to be talking about a new court focusing on aggression when it was not a full party to the Rome statute. I mean, I think, you know, to some extent, that's a, that's a dodge. Um, you know, it's a way of distracting from uh, other arguments against the Against the tribunal, but, uh, especially for the Latin American group in, in the UN, you know, the, these matters of legality, uh, are very significant. So yes, I think that, um, if Ukraine were to accede to the Rome statute, that would, um, you know, that would be an argument in its favor, 
uh, uh, in the UN system right now. So actually, I want to return um, to Olya's earlier questions about how a tribunal could potentially disincentivize peace negotiations for Russian leaders. Um, is that is that a real risk? Uh, I don't know, Brian, um, Richard, does one of you want to answer that? Well, I'll, I'll just emphasize again that as with much about this conflict, you know, the it's playing out before our eyes and it's, it's um, highly speculative how it would impact um, peace negotiations. But um, certainly it's, it seems unhelpful to the extent it, the um, U.S. and other Western powers were to stand up um, an aggression tribunal that carried the implicit threat of regime change against you know um, Russian leadership. That seems unhelpful um, and it seems like it, like it would potentially complicate um, any uh, eventual negotiations. Um, it's not clear to me that all models of a potential aggression um, tribunal necessarily carry that risk. But I, I, as, a, as I said, most many aspects of this conflict, um, it's very dynamic, and it's, so it's hard to see um, um, clearly how exactly um, it, would, it would impact any eventual um, you know, negotiated settlement um, or ceasefire. I mean, I think that um, coming back to the potential UN debate about this, what we have seen in the last couple of months is that non-Western countries, uh, including those that are sympathetic to Ukraine and those that are perhaps more more leaning towards Russia, you know, have all been using similar language about how they want to see the war to end. Uh, we were tracking this in General Assembly debates last week. There's a huge emphasis on dialogue and diplomacy. Uh, there is um, also a bit of a push we're seeing now from South Africa and, and Brazil to try and sort of create some sort of UN-based or non-UN-based uh, mediation mechanism. Uh, to end to end the war, uh, obviously China um, also echoed a lot of those ideas in its rather nebulous um, peace plan last week. I mean, I have a, I have a concern, which is as the war goes on, however unjustifiably, we're going to see a growing number of countries from the global south at the UN saying that Ukraine is an obstacle to peace um, and that Ukraine should accept. That it should enter a mediation process without without preconditions. Uh, now, I, I think that, that 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 is a misleading argument, to be frank. However, if Ukraine sort of continues to push for things like the aggression tribunal, it may well find that uh, there are a lot of diplomats around the UN who are saying, you know, that is the wrong focus, and actually, um, we think it's a sign that you're not you're not serious about um, finding a political solution to this conflict. We talked a little bit there about the potential disincentives, but are there, what are the upsides of a tribunal? You know, what what would be a positive outcome of, of actually putting a tribunal together at this point? So proponents of uh, establishing an aggression tribunal um, cite a few different benefits. Um, first and foremost, upholding international laws, prohibition on the use of force, um, particularly in the face of such an egregious violation as Russia's uh, war on Ukraine. Um, you know, supporters such as um, former UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown invoke the uh, judgment of the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg um, that observed that um, initiating a war of aggression 
it's, is the supreme international crime because all other war crimes flow from that um, underlying offense. Um, and so merely prosecuting uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, doesn't get at that underlying um, original offense. Um, other proponents, such as um, Philippe Sanz, have argued that prosecuting Putin before such a tribunal would further delegitimize him um, and create an incentive for those in his inner circle to um, peel off and potentially offer leverage in future negotiations. So those are some of the potential benefits cited by advocates for um, a tribunal. Um, thank you. I mean, I have to say, as a Russia watcher, I'm not sure that in that the judgment of the international tribunal is going to be the make or break issue for Russia's uh, inner circle, uh, for Putin's inner circle, but uh, it's an interesting argument. I mean, I guess the argument I hear most is kind of this justice argument that this justice is served with the affirmation of, uh, of the just cause, right? By something with, uh, with the power to affirm it. Um, does that, uh, you know, kind of, it's, uh, I suppose it's a political, it's an image, you know, it's, a um, it's a symbolic value. Um, is that, uh, is that something you think is about right? And how important would you judge that as being? And also how much, uh, how, how much resonance does that have in the rest of the world? Right. Um, only that, that, I think that's consistent with this notion that, you know, uh, trying the crimes of, um, soldiers in the battlefield doesn't get at the, what is the overarching offense here, which is launching this disastrous war in the first place. And it's only by punishing those who made the decision, um, to launch this, um, catastrophic conflict that you really address the ultimate wrong here. So yes, I think the, that would be one of the, the key points, I think, evoked by advocates for um, a tribunal, and, and only by um, you know punishing those who decide to unleash uh, wars like this, um, will you deter future such um, unlawful uses of force. I, I don't know whether Richard wants uh, a final word as well. If there's anything you've got to add to the sort of symbolism question, or anything specific from a UN standpoint that you think would be useful. Uh, to to know? Well, I think I would simply say, um, watch this space. Uh, there was talk of uh, reviving the Ukrainian resolution on the tribunal as early as this month. Uh, my understanding is that it is getting pushed back um, further. But you know, there are there are a lot of countries uh, from you know from the pro-Ukrainian camp at the UN who would would like to see this become a reality. And even though we've heard that the US is skeptical, even though we've heard that the UK is skeptical, um, a European ambassador put it to me a couple of weeks ago that very strange things have happened diplomatically around this war. And you cannot preclude that the public campaigning uh, for the tribunal um, may actually finally lead to some sort of resolution in the, in the General Assembly. I, I don't think this story is, is over by, um, by any means.
So that was our Twitter space. A big thank you to everyone tuning in here or on Twitter. The Twitter space was organised and brought to life with the kind assistance of our Europe Communications and Advocacy Officer, Natalia Tuzovskaya, and our Online Communications Officer, Emmanuel Gamal, as well as our podcast producers, Alex Fogursky and Heiko Schaub. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. We look forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.